Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, Guillermo and I chat with Yaz and Ismail from Celestia. We discuss how the team prepared for the Celestia launch, we revisit DA, or data availability, and then talk about how projects are using Celestia today. We cover Blobstream and map out how a developer could tap into the Celestia DA layer, and then we chat about community building, the modular narrative, and more. Now, before we kick off, I just want to remind you that the ZK Summit 11 is happening in Athens on April 10th. This is an invite-only event, and space is limited. There's an application process to attend, and you need to apply to be eligible for a ticket. I've added the link in the show notes. So I hope to see you there. Now, Tanya will share a little bit about this week's sponsor. Alio is a new Layer 1 blockchain that achieves the programmability of Ethereum, the privacy of Zcash, and the scalability of a rollup. Driven by a mission for a truly secure internet, Alio has interwoven zero-knowledge proofs into every facet of their stack, resulting in a vertically integrated Layer 1 blockchain that's unparalleled in its approach. Alio is ZK by design. Dive into their programming language, Leo, and see what permissionless development looks like, offering boundless opportunities for developers and innovators to build ZK apps. As Alio is gearing up for their mainnet launch in Q1, this is an invitation to be part of a transformational ZK journey. Dive deeper and discover more about Alio at alio.org. And now here's our episode. Today, we're here with Ismail and Yaz from Celestia. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Hey, thanks for having us. And we have Guillermo as the co-host for this one. Hey, Guillermo. What's up? So we're very excited to have you on. We're going to be doing an episode revisiting Celestia. I want to do a quick throwback to a few previous episodes. Um, a long time ago, we had John Adler on the show talking about, I think, Fuel and Lazy Ledger at the time, which developed into Celestia. Ismail, this is your second time on the show. We did an episode kind of introducing Celestia a little bit more. And then last year, I had an episode with Mustafa all about sovereign chains and, and sort of the sovereign roll-up idea. Today, we're going to be doing a catch-up on the project. What's really exciting is the project has since launched and obviously, this is something I really want to cover with the two of you. <laughs> Quick disclosure before we kick off, though. So the ZK Validator is an investor, and we're a validator. Also, that's a bit of a shout out. We're a validator. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess I also should mention that Bank Capital Crypt is also an investor in, in Celestia. And so investor, war what is it called? Investment warning, investment? This is not this investment, is not investment advice. <laughs> There we go. Thank you. That's what it is. This is not investment advice. We're so good at that on this um. show. Um, <laughs> and actually, oh, I want to do one other shout out to another video that we did this past summer for the Sovereign Radio. I actually got a chance there to interview you as well. I'll add the links to all of these in the show notes. But I want to welcome you back. And I think for those listeners who are not familiar with those previous episodes or videos, why don't you quickly introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Ismail Coffey and um, co-founder and CTO of Celestia Labs. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> Easy. I guess if anyone wants to hear more of your backstory, they can check out the previous episode. 
Yaz, this is the first time you come on the show. We've actually worked together on a few different projects behind the scenes, but yeah, I'm I'm excited to have you on the show for the first time. Do tell us a little bit about your background. So I'm Yas Guri. I'm the head of DevRel at Celestia Labs. Previously, before Celestia, I were the protocol DevRel at Celo for uh, two years. Yeah. And before that, I've been um, at Ethereum Classic, believe it or not. <gasps> oh. Director of DevRel at Ethereum Classic for a couple of years. <laughs> um, and I've done a few things here and there, like with Flashbots, with the EEA, random stints here and there. But yeah, yeah. very happy to be here. Very cool. I met so I met you, Yaz, when we worked on the Plumo setup ceremony for Cello mm-hmm. uh, in 2020, 2021. Oh, let's go. Yeah. Yeah, that was really fun because um yeah, I came to you with the idea about what if we live stream across the setup ceremony. And what I remember was, you know, there was a debate about doing it on a server, running the computation on a server versus locally. Yeah. And I decided to do it locally while doing a live stream. And what I didn't realize at the time <laughs> was when you do these computation, it kind of destroys your Wi-Fi. So while I'm live streaming, <laughs> my internet was cutting True. off. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, but still a good experiment. Um, yeah. I feel yeah. like since then, we've also, I mean... So last summer, ZK Validator curated part of the Modular Summit. Like you and I have kind of talked a lot about events, and so mm-hmm. it's it's been fun working with you. So you've just kind of given us a bit of a background on what led you to Celestia, but what do you exactly do today at Celestia? You're saying DevRel, but I feel like your role is kind of broader somehow. So I'm cursed with the um, experience of things outside of DevRel because not <laughs> a lot of people can do them and stuff. So while I'm still like doing DevRel stuff, I do a lot of things like outside of that that covers validators, it covers core developers. But like, yeah, from a high level, there's um, the way I structure DevRel at Celestia. It like there are multiple different teams mm-hmm. on DevRel. We have the solution engineering team that I manage. Currently now we're at four engineers, no, actually five right now on that team. Um, and they tap into all kind of crazy stuff, right? Like integrations, like the OP stack or the Arbitrum integration with Celestia. Um, mm. Now we're um, looking at ZK related kind of work streams. So I manage that team. There's also the developer advocacy kind of uh, mm-hmm. um, and experience work stream. Um, where we focus a lot on documentation, tutorials, and demo. Then we have programs, and that would be like the Modular Summit. Like now we're we're scoping out soon to be, you know, announced later, um, a hackathon. Um, mm. And all the events and side conferences that we support. And mm. finally, validator relations. So all validators that want to, you know, support the network and stuff where, you know, we work with them for coordination, network upgrades, and hard work coordination, and obviously, like, mainnet launch. And, yeah, I mean, we also do a lot of community-related operations, and the main program there with core developers is what we call the Celestia Improvement Proposal Process, or the CIP Mm -hmm. process. It's kind of like the EIP, but it's based on, like, the IETF, you know, standards for how do you create working groups when you're building technical uh, specifications and implementations. So what I'm trying to say is uh, I barely sleep. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes as the, uh, the lead cat herder uh yeah. open source cat herder i believe is a possible alternative title um yeah 
I, I believe that hurting is an art. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's an art and a job. Apparently, yeah. as we found out, it is. I want to just add to this that we're extremely lucky to have Yaz. I, yeah, it's mind blowing to me <laughs> how productive he is. <laughs> I love it. Let's define Celestia for folks who aren't familiar with the project. I know that like most of this episode is almost going to be like teasing out the nuances and talking about updates, but I think it's good to yeah just set the scene. Obviously, Celestia is really well known. The term like DA or data availability and Celestia are very much intertwined. So how would you define the project today? Yeah, Celestia is a data availability layer and uh, it's a live P2P network. So what is a data availability layer? So data availability is often confused with uh, long-term storage or data retrievability. But what it actually means is that in a blockchain, if you publish transactions, how is it guaranteed to the network, to the peer-to-peer -peer network, that these transactions have been made available to the public, like have been published to the network, essentially? And um, a data availability network, that's the main purpose of it, like ensuring that um, everyone can verify that the transactions have been published and they, for a period of time, can be downloaded from the network and can be executed mm -hmm. such that you can verify the state of your decentralized application. There's two ways on how these decentralized applications can look like, um, like very generally speaking. One is through validity proofs. You can, like via ZK proofs or, or cryptographic techniques, ensure that the state transitions that were made are actually valid. And the other approach is optimistic rollups or optimistically via fraud proofs. Um, so you just assume that the state is valid. And in case there has been any malicious state transition, you can prove that via so-called state fraud proofs. And the data availability layer makes that possible. This is sort of setting the stage with a definition on DA, but how do you define Celestia as a project today? So Celestia as a project today is the live network and the community around it. It's a broad ecosystem of validators, node operators, and applications building on top. These applications benefit from uh, low costs for data availability. There's a great variety of how these applications can look like. Most of them currently um, are somehow EVM-focused, right? Ah, so mm -hmm. they build on OP stack, for instance, so Optimism's uh, stack, and they settle, for instance, on Arbitrum or Optimism, so Ethereum mm -hmm. layer twos, but post their data instead of on Ethereum, they post it on Celestia. Wow. What we will see more and more, um, as I said, like there's, there's many approaches, so we, we will see more and more is also alternatives to that, which could be sovereign rollups, like think of them as their own chains that do not um, settle on an existing settlement layer, but instead are more like cosmos zones that mm. do not run their own consensus. This is interesting to me. So like, where are the contracts actually deployed for these things? <laughs> do they not get deployed at all on Ethereum L1? They do. They do. Okay. How does something like that work? So the way it would work with like an OP stack implementation is um, you deploy your OP stack or um, Arbitrum based rollup L2, you know, the smart contracts are still on Ethereum, right? Okay. But you're submitting mm -hmm. your blogs to Celestia, mm. right? You're, you know, you're submitting them to Celestia and what the Celestia validator 
do um, through Blockstream is they attest to the data availability through a bridge back to Ethereum. There's a smart contract on Ethereum, like a light client implementation there. And the rollup itself will be sampling via that smart contract. Okay. Interesting. You just mentioned Blobstream. We will have to come back to that because that's a whole, I don't know if you'd call it product or what exactly it is, but it's a, it's a thing in its own right. But yeah, this is, this is super interesting. I will warn that uh, even, even the word blob is already uh, delving into um, jargon territory. So maybe we should also <laughs> define what that means. So I, I will be the, the jargon warning person. Oh, good. To be, but, um, be the jargon decoder. I like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> before we do that, though, before we talk blob, blobstream, jargon, I actually want to bring us out a little bit. So it sounds like, I mean, Celestia's live today. We're already seeing it being used for real. Last time we, I talked about this on the show was with Mustafa, and then it was very focused on sovereign chains and sort of the vision that he had. It looked a certain way. I want to talk to you about the launch and then actually what's happened since. So let's first start with the launch. How did it go? Um, as the person, like I coordinated launch in support with Ismail, with the core devs, with the community, with the validators and stuff. The best way I can describe launch, it was like a beautiful symphony. And I would like the <laughs> orchestra. Was, like, like everyone was performing their musical instruments. And I was like, validators, core developers, Start. release the docs. And it's all went it all went perfectly. Like it was wow. actually a very boring launch. And the thing that I missed on launch, because we I, I built like a little dashboard um to monitor the blocks. From like there's like a timer until launch, and then after that, it shows you block production happening. So there was like between block one and block two with like a 20 second block production. And I kind of panicked while looking at the dashboard. <laughs> but the reason for that, like the technical reason for that is because um, what the core devs told me is the network we're building is topology. So there were going to be oh. latency as the validators, you know, connected and stuff and start, you know, peering with each other. So that was kind of like expected, but then it went really smoothly. At one point, I think, after, like, I was trying to take a photo block 420, but I missed it. Um, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I did go to Ismail and I was like, um, I think it went really well. And Ismail was just like smiling and just gave me a hug. <laughs> True. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So it was a perfect, it was a lovely symphony. I mean, we did a launch party a few, like online, just a few hours after. And I was surprised at how chill you guys were. You guys were just in like in a good mood. I mean, yeah. we had we had gone as a validator, we had seen and gone through some other launches that were definitely more difficult where something breaks, they have to halt the chain. Like we, you know, we've seen some pretty chaotic ones. Did you miss the chaos? <laughs> um, I certainly did not miss the okay. chaos. <laughs> I was very happy that it went so smoothly. And yeah. um, what Yaz called, it was a boring launch. I think that um, also means that like, it was a lot of coordination that happened up front and a lot of um, hard work with like test nets and mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. basically practicing a lot and uh, making sure the software runs smoothly. I was hoping for a boring launch and I went as, uh, or as it went even more smooth than I would have expected. How, how did you guys test this stuff? Like, I remember at some point uh, someone recommended the idea of giving a bunch of like 
core team developers, uh, Raspberry Pis, and then trying to like launch everything simultaneously as like a pre 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 test run, uh, and that being like a, a kind of like a CD method, where like you would like distribute, <laughs> you'd be like, all right, everyone pull, like let's start the the chain on a bunch of Raspberry Pis sitting in someone's basement in like different places in the world. I but I don't know how, how do you even kind of do like continual testing on a large decentralized network actually out of curiosity i this is this is a very procedural question it's kind of, isn't it an upgrade of a test net though isn't there usually like a test net that they've decided is like the yeah. one we didn't do that um that's very often the case right like very often chain launches today are like that where you basically you launch in in more almost like in private and it's like a, mm-hmm. it's, a it's a it's a test net essentially and then someone decides like, okay, this is stable enough and then it's public and then it's mainnet. Yeah. But like what we did was slightly, not slightly, it was very different in the sense that um, we assembled the Genesis file, we published that and mm-hmm. um, the community agreed on it. We like, there's a, there's a date set in the Genesis file, like how it technically works. There's literally just an if statement in the code that says like, oh, if it's Genesis time, if it's before Genesis time, just go to sleep. Like there's like an actual line of code that says like sleep until Genesis basically. And then with that moment kicking in, the chain went live. The peers, like the the nodes look for other peers. That's the 20 seconds that uh, Yaz mm-hmm. mentioned. Then the chain was live. So there was no such period where, where it was like coordinated in the background. It was like more real decentralized launch in, in wow. as much as as possible almost is this like the og this is a bit of an, like the og way of doing it yeah mm, yeah i mean uh, for the cosmos hub we did it very similarly okay why did you choose this way though why not do it from a testnet upgrade well kind of we did kind of like we did have five, like four to five testnet one of them being the block space race that the intention of the block space race were the incentivized testnet program mm-hmm. where we tested so many different things and there was a lot of um, it mixed not only the validators but also da nodes like the light nodes bridge nodes and uh the full nodes mm-hmm. and we had a thousand participants and that allowed us to really really stress test um yeah. the first testnet that was designed for mainnet and that allowed us to, you know, update everything after. And then leading up to launch, um, I was coordinating um, with some the core devs and some people running validators, like one testnet a week. And what we're doing was timing it, right? Mm. So we, you know, you have five people participating. Each one has a role. Like we had a member from the DevOps team, a member from the Celestia node or the DA team, mm-hmm. um, a member from uh, the core and app team that's running that um, consensus client. And then you had me. I don't know what I was doing there, but yeah, I was there. <laughs> <Hang> <laughs> <out>. <laughs> um, and, and then you have Ismail, right? And what we did was um, basically there's several steps that need to happen. Um, starting with what, you know, Ismail was saying, you know, you created the Genesis file, but prior to that, you can create a small Genesis file. That has to like it doesn't matter what's on it as long as you specify that it has to start at a specific time in the future. And the future can be like in thirty minutes, right? Uh, like mm-hmm. start in thirty minutes, mm-hmm. right? And then everyone started running their validator, and then we monitor, right? And mm-hmm. then block production happened, it kicks off. But then there's a few other things that need to happen, right? Like 
the DA node have to make a public release that is compatible with mainnet because mm. you know mainnet uh, launched the consensus client, but then the DA side has to take that um, like the first block hash into their software, and then they make a public release, um, okay. and then you can start your light nodes and store full storage node. And what's cool is you know when we're timing it, like one week before mainnet launch, the DevOps team had this whole kind of system in place to time, like, you know, making that release for the DA side and deploying bootstrappers, explorers, everything just for testing. Mm -hmm. Um, So after the first block production for the testnet prior to release, um, they set things in motion and then they timed it. And I think one of the team members had a stopwatch and we're like, how long did it take to deploy everything? And they're like, 14 minutes. <laughs> like, oh, I'm like, good. all right, for mainnet launch, maybe you can do it under 10 minutes. We're like, challenge accepted. And it wow. was really fun. That separation, though, the fact that, like, first you have the consensus, then you have this DA step, is that unique to Celestia and, like, a DA system? Or, or do all kind of regular blockchains have that happening under the hood? No. Because Celestia, you know, there's um, multiple layers, right? There's, like, mm-hmm. the consensus and DA layer. But DA has to, like, you know, see, you know, what network is it data, you know, sampling from. So it mm-hmm. needs the client to first release on the consensus side before they make a public release um, for the DA, start, uh, DA side to start running um, DA nodes. Wow. That's so interesting. I think technically speaking, it could be the case that if the binaries basically that run the particular networks, right, uh, if they were one binary, I think um, the Celestia node, basically the the, the light client and the uh, Celestia node full node, theoretically, they could also do it without that delay initially. I mean, the light clients is different is a different story because they need some like subjective header to like initialize, and so it needs some block or some header need to have happened first. But like for a full node, theoretically, it could be that they run uh, in parallel, and it's not a necessary step. But the way we've implemented is it's more separated. Um, mm-hmm. We are thinking of doing our own merge in the sense that Ooh. to merge these both networks, right? That's something that is like considered. I think I'm not sure if there's a CIP for that to, yet, to be honest, but there's definitely a consideration to like make it a bit like from the UX also a bit nicer for node operators to mm. have only one binary, right? Like, and also one peer to peer network. Mm. Um, but like that's just an implementation detail it doesn't really matter and I actually kind of like the separation though I do think it would be nice if there was one peer-to-peer stack used only right like the separation itself is like like, it's nice that things are so isolated in the sense that like if there's a bug in the DA layer it doesn't trickle down to the consensus layer at all Mm. and vice versa but like if if the consensus layer breaks down no blocks are produced and the DA layer is kind of pointless but like um it's it's it has its benefits, but I think from the from the UX perspective for node operators, it would be neat if it was a bit more tightly coupled, um, just a tiny bit. And I think there's there's teams working on that. When you launched, was there any rollups ready to go, or was it sort of like launch, wait, get rollup deployment? Like I was kind of curious about that, like if the system sort of like and the and the larger picture of it with these rollups kind of branched off it were there from the start. 
Or did you actually have to run it a while before they deployed, just to be sure? They could have deployed immediately. Um, I think maybe out of caution, people didn't uh, in the mm -hmm. first week or something. But like, it's a permissionless system. P people could have like with block one started deploying rollups, uh, and it is something that could have happened because on uh, these many test nets that there were live, I think there were like even as 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 mainnet beta was launched, there were three test nets uh, running in parallel with various deployments. Um, one of them was like Dimension with, I don't know, I think like 10,000 applications running on top. Oh. Uh, like a bunch of smaller games and stuff. So it could have been, right? Like it could have been, but like um, most of these rollups were getting ready themselves. Most of these yeah, rollups yeah. had test nets themselves. And I think most of them waited for a few weeks before mm -hmm. they started posting blobs or, or data onto Celestia. The requirement for deploying from testnet to mainnet requires a lot of legwork that's not necessarily technical mm. and stuff, mm -hmm. but it does require a lot of kind of management and organization from within that those roll-up teams, right? So it wasn't like, yeah, I mean, like Ismail said, it was permissionless. You can immediately deploy if you wish to, but um, there's a lot of coordination and a lot of, you know, things that you got to do prior to do an official launch, right? Which is why a lot of them existed on testnet because they just wanted mm -hmm. to test thing. At the same time, it's kind of a good thing nobody launched at the first week. For the first week, we just want to see stable block production. We just yeah. want to monitor the network. We want to see that the DA layer is, you know, sampling and, you know, all of that stuff. I feel like this leads us a little bit to the question of Blobstream and kind of introducing what that is. Because like on that launch day, we talked about it, but I still don't really know what to call it. Like, I don't know if it's like an initiative or a product or roll up itself. Like, I don't know exactly what it is. So you launched a few weeks later or like, yeah, soon after you had a few roll ups happening at this, you know, joining. That, by the way, is very much the picture that Mustafa had kind of described in our interview. Like that sovereign chains and and that sort mm -hmm. of model. But then, yeah, let's talk about Blobstream because I feel like that kind of changes that picture a little bit, at least for me. And maybe maybe I don't understand it right. But yeah, what is Blobstream? Let's start there. And tell me if it is it a roll up? <laughs> is it a product? <laughs> is it an initiative? <laughs> it's not a roll up. It's a kind of philosophical question. If it's a product, I would say yes. Let's define the type of the object, I think, is what Anna's getting. Is it a movement? <laughs> it's, also, it's also kind of an initiative in the sense okay. that um, someone needs to deploy a smart contract for it to work on Ethereum. Mm. And validators need to start running um, what is called a relayer or orchestrator that actually posts data attestations uh, to Ethereum, to that smart contract, to digest. So it's not a roll-up. <laughs> okay, that, that's clear. <laughs> uh, so we, we, what, what you could think of, like from a very high-level perspective, what you could think of, uh, or a good analogy, is like a one-way bridge mm -hmm. from Celestia to Ethereum. And the only purpose of that bridge is to relay attestations, basically signatures of the validators to Ethereum that the... Um, they attest to this data, this data route was published to the network. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's a very simple primitive. And for that, you need like these smart contracts um, to digest these attestations. And then the purpose of it is that 
applications deployed on Ethereum can then, like like layer twos, layer threes on Ethereum, can then post their data onto Celestia mm-hmm. and um, get an attestation on back on Ethereum that this data was published on Celestia. And okay. then they can like use Ethereum or a layer above Ethereum for its like Arbitrum directly or um, Optimism or any layer two on top of Ethereum can use that for settlement. So they live, they have that for bridging, for state fraud proofs or for validity proofs. They can use their settlement layer as before, either that's Ethereum or layer two on top of Ethereum. But they can now post their data instead of posting it on Ethereum, which is um, expensive, or on the like regular settlement layer, which could still be more expensive, they can now post the data on Celestia directly and sort of like into call data in to the dedicated EVM, either the layer one or layer two. Hmm. Right. I want to break this down into these pieces if I can. So in this case, the Ethereum L1 is the consensus. It's the smart contract platform where the smart contract is deployed, right? It's the settlement. I thought the L2 was settlement. I want to understand. Help, help me with this. Where's the consensus? Where's the settlement? Where's the DA happening? That's like the kind of, because I feel like they're being split, right? Yeah. The, the DA and the consensus is on Celestia. Oh, the I see. Okay. settlement is on Ethereum, and the execution is on that layer two. Oh, wow. Okay, so this goes back, by the way, to that original example you gave with the OP stack, because you had said L2 for settlement, but you're saying like the execution of the settlement happens on the L2, but the right. L1 is the settlement layer still. Mm-hmm. Okay. I didn't realize that consensus and DA go over to Celestia. Mm-hmm. I have to add one more thing. It's consensus and DA only for the data of that application or chain. Right. Okay. It is not for the state. Yeah, so the consensus for the state remains on Ethereum. Yeah, on Ethereum or on the settlement layer that application uses to be more general. Wow, this see this is where it's it's so it's so fascinating. Like these these parts that we've understood. So I've always thought of it as three parts, but it sounds like it's actually four. It's consensus, consensus. It's like consensus for DA, consensus for state, DA, and settlement. <laughs> so wow, yeah. The, maybe let's disambiguate, right? Like like blob stream. Is I think that maybe here's another way of describing it that may also be useful. It's simply a way for Ethereum or or I, I guess any smart contract chain doesn't really matter to verify that a particular piece of state is available to everybody. So the way we do like generally is like you have some light client. And this is like also similarly a question. So feel free to correct me if I am wrong at any point. Nominally, you have a light client and you you're like I want to check if a piece of data has been posted to Celestia. Right, and then you you can create. Essentially, you you can certify that that is the case, right? And if not, you could whatever do some slashing. That's you know big brain. Um, but the point is like, okay, cool. Like that requires the problem is that, that requires you run a light client in your computer, but mm. you don't want like you know you want to use the you know the power of the magical internet computer that we call Ethereum to verify that a piece of data has been posted instead. Right, so us to not require anybody else to have this like other secondary network that is verifying whether something is posted. 
And so this blob stream is like one way of being like, great, like there's a contract in Ethereum and you can say, I promise you I posted this data. Mm -hmm. And then you simply say, and if you don't believe me, I will, I will post this particularization to Ethereum and then it will indeed certify that I have posted the data more broadly. And if you trust Ethereum security, then you must trust that I have posted the data in the first place. Hmm. And so of course that has a bunch of applications. Um, this can be used to just like remove the data piece from the L2 and simply post it on Celestia, right? So now we have now we have like removed like one part that we often need to deal with, which is posting data to either Ethereum or some other, you know, like make, essentially making data available. We have now like removed that task and given it to Celestia in a verifiable way, in a way that you can indeed certify that like, here you go, the data that I promised would be available is available and you don't have to trust anyone other than essentially like Ethereum for that to be the case. Is that roughly correct? No, that's a very accurate. But to add to it, why would anyone want to do that? You know, why would that's you right. want to start modularizing, you know, like moving components <laughs> around and stuff? It like it kind of like Lego pieces. But the biggest benefit is this is how you scale Ethereum, right? Because now layer twos on Ethereum have way cheaper transaction costs mm -hmm. because they're submitting. They have a really cheap uh, DA. Uh, layer they can submit their blocks to and mm -hmm. you know and they can verify um you know that it's been attested to on ethereum and that gives them a lot of superpowers where now you can deploy a rollup on ethereum and not worry about cost anymore because you have like a da network that can it makes it really cheap for you to um you know send your transactions to when you talk about sort of the official like making it cheaper a lot of times, I mean, what my, my mind goes to, but like, but weren't L2s invented to make things cheaper? Like, aren't they themselves supposed to just make it cheaper? Like, uh, or are you making it cheaper for L2s to exist? I mean, I can answer that question because there are multiple layer based on what Celestia solved originally and based yeah. on what was the rollup centric roadmap that Ethereum went through based on Celestia's vision, but still had problem without a DA layer. Okay. So I'll break it down into like from the rollup side. From the rollup side, um, the idea that you can just deploy a rollup on Ethereum with no cheap DA, um, it doesn't scale Ethereum because mm -hmm. what happens is, let's say it's a really successful rollup, right? Yeah. Um, it has some fun games, there's some, I don't know, NFTs, whatever the cool kids are into these is, right? <laughs> that will create a lot of adoption, right? There'll be a lot of adoption on it. So what happens when you have a lot of adoption, you'll have a lot of high transaction costs. Yeah. And that doesn't solve the problem of scaling because you still end up where you you know started where like, well, things are really expensive. What do I do now? Well, maybe there's another rollup that I can go to. You go to the other rollup, same thing. It's another chain that, you know, the more users, the more transaction there are, the more expensive it becomes. Do they just get filled up almost? Like they like when they're yeah. empty, they're really cheap, but the more action they kind of just catch yeah. up to the to the L1 in terms of exactly. the gas fees. It's gas fees, right? Like on like for the user, they're noticing, oh, actually it's not cheaper on this L2 anymore. Because there's demand, right? Mm. Might still be cheaper as if they would deploy directly completely on Ethereum. Like it might still be cheaper on that L2. But as Zia said, once that L2 or like once that rollup on Ethereum gets really popular, you compete again for data and state on that uh, layer as well. So I think mm -hmm. the key point here is specialization because 
if you have one layer that only does data, basically, like only does one thing, it like ensures the data was published and the, the data is ordered, so there's consensus on the data, then there's no competition between state execution and that uh, on that layer. So um, it's highly specialized and can optimize for exactly that use case. And the applications on top can focus on speeding up the execution. So, so fundamentally, right, what, what, get, what happens with L2s is as the they become more congested. Like at the end of the day, like what happens on the L2 has to be posted somewhere, mm. right? And if you are simply on Ethereum, like all you're doing is you're just passing the storage cost down to Ethereum, but that's still going to cost you the same as if you were doing the thing on Ethereum, at least for mm. storage, maybe not for compute, right? You could be running much faster, fancier, bigger computers. But for storage, you're still storing the same data, right, that mm-hmm. you were do- storing previously like on Ethereum. And so that that cost is always going to get passed back to you um, after enough usage. This was the thing that's done by the L2 itself, right? Like this is the L2 smart contracts, like writing to the main chain, those like check-in points that, I mean, we've covered, I covered this mm-hmm. years ago when mm-hmm. we did mm-hmm. a series on L2s. So is it really, is it that those pieces then? Like, is it that writing to the main chain that gets moved over to Celestia? Not exactly, because if Celestia were just another settlement layer if mm-hmm. in a different world, right, it doesn't solve that problem either. But what Celestia solved from a high-level problem um, is what we call the big block problem, which um, basically solving the blockchain trilemma, which if I remember correctly, it's in, like the trilemma. The trilemma includes it's a triangle with security, uh, decentralization, and I think network uptime. Correct me if I'm mm. wrong, anyone? I think that might be it. There's but so anyways. many trilemmas out there. Yeah. Sometimes privacy is <laughs> on a corner, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah. At this point, it's like a 6D simplex in some yeah. space yeah. with like, you know, 70 million faces and you can pick any triangle you want out of it or whatever. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot but, of dilemmas. But the, the one you mentioned, we can go with that yeah. one. Yeah, let's go with that one. So basically, it's the big block problem, which is, you know, for a long time, you know, you can see, um, you know, a lot of smart people can come into the space, um, you know, criticizing crypto and be like, well, if your problem is high transaction costs, why don't you just increase the block? Right. Mm -hmm. I'm like Elon Musk talking about Dogecoin or whatever. It's like, you know, and it's like, well, yeah, I mean, don't don't you think we never thought of that? Right. Like Mm -hmm. we can just increase the block and stuff. Um, But the problem with the big block is if you increase the block side, you centralize the network because the cost of running a node exponentially increases. Mm -hmm. Right. And what Celestia solved there is allow you to increase the block size while keeping the network decentralized. And that is through what we call data variability sampling. We're sampling from a high level. I mean, I can give an example of it later, but like a really simple example, but from a high level allows a light node to download less or sample less than 1% of a block to get 99.99% certainty about what is included in that block, Mm -hmm. right? So in a way, the way that we can provide cheap DA for these rollups is because if the blocks increase and they start getting billed, we can increase the block side as long as we're, you know, people are running and people are incentivized to run uh, light nodes in order to ensure that we can continuously sample the blocks Mm. while keeping the network decentralized. Cool. And I think this also speaks very much to the modular thesis, modular vision that you that you guys have been pioneering where you're you're not just making the block bigger you're not just like it's it's not like this kind of unsophisticated 
slapping a Band-Aid on something. You're like <laughs> kind of dissecting out and then sampling, like, you know, trying to reduce it so that it's still correct without just bloating it. It's really interesting. Yeah. Okay, I think we have a bit of a better sense for Blobstream now, although I, I have one last question about Blobstream. Again, we're kind of like my original concept and the original thing we talked about with Mustafa had Celestia as not the settlement layer, but definitely like the center of rollups. Here, Celestia is interacting with another existing chain. And so it's really providing DA, but it's not providing some of the other things it would do for sovereign rollups, for example, it sounds like. You sort of said it's it's sort of a product, but is it like, is it a set of smart contracts that you've developed? Is it like something that if a app developer living on an L2 could deploy themselves on Ethereum and that's what that is, is that sort of the product is just like a collection of smart contracts on Ethereum that interact with Celestia? Or is it more than that? In terms of software, it's mostly the smart contracts, but also um, they need to be in one component in Celestia that uh, posts these data attestations to Ethereum. Okay. Um, and and it, it ha like we developed that last year, but there's also a team, Sucint, um, that developed uh, a ZK version of that, oh, much cool. better suited for this podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's basically an optimization that uh, it proves the succinctly the consensus that was achieved on Celestia, mm -hmm. right? Like then instead of the, the smart contract posting all the signatures and like it's, um, being also somewhat expensive, you can have like uh, post a proof and that can be verified, like that can be verified on, on, on Ethereum essentially. Mm. Mm -hmm. What's the name of that team? Succinct. Oh, succinct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. You've had them on the Great show. Great team. Oh, yeah. Wait, wait. It's Blobstream X, right? X, exactly. Yes. Yeah, okay. Right. I'm yeah. familiar with this. Yeah, yeah. So, so these, these, like the name is Blobstream X, but it's essentially the same product. Like from from I a see. product perspective, it's exactly the same thing. Because Got for it. the user, it doesn't matter if a zk proof or it's like an optimized version of Blobstream, basically. I see. I have a kind of random question that may be very quick to answer. But do sequencers of L2s ever interact with Celestia or a DA layer? The way that I've understood, like everything you described with like, I, I thought it was more like the app developer use like an app on an L2 that's actually like using this DA. Or are you interacting with sequencers differently? I mean, one, one way to look at it, um, like a model is um, like the sequencer interacting with Celestia is kind of like, in a way, if you want to abstract it, it's the rollup interacting with Celestia. So yeah. the developer in that case is a rollup developer that's deploying a rollup, right? And that's interacting with Celestia. It's kind of like if you look at the cloud computing model, like if I'm deploying an application on AWS or Google Cloud or whatever, in this case is Celestia, we're providing like infrastructure for that rollup, right? Mm -hmm. But from a user perspective, they don't really need to interact with Celeste. They're interacting with that rollup. Like that rollup could be application specific or something, but they don't necessarily interact with Celeste directly. They can if they want to, but I mean, it depends on the kind of user. I think what you're saying though, in that case, so and this does go back to another conversation, Ismail, you and I had, which was this idea that the rollup is the app. That's sort of like lots of rollups, each one is an app. But I had this, I mean, when I say DAP, or I, I'm actually thinking of like 
a lending protocol or like something that like is not a roll up. It's it's used to like it being deployed on as a smart contract in an EVM environment. So it could be doing that on an L2. It's not creating its own roll up. In that case, would that app deployment actually be interacting with Celestia? Maybe like we can think about it in some like layers, right? Where it's like yeah. the, you have the L2 and then on top of it are a bunch of apps and the L2 itself interacts with Celestia. Okay. Right. So the L, so the apps on top of the L2 do not. Yeah, like they do, but through the L2 directly, yeah, okay. right? Like they, but they they're post- not, they're not deploying the contracts themselves. And I think this just so right. just to go back a little bit to rewind a little bit into this conversation. I think there was a moment where I was thinking more on that level, and this is a good clarification that like when you talk about an application on Ethereum, those smart contracts, those are always going to be rollups. So sequencers, they're not going to be like the lending <laughs> app or something, unless they want their own rollup, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, but there okay. are there are also almost like layer threes on top of layer twos these days, right? Like, and and these are more like their own chain, but they use DL to to have like a quick access to that ecosystem of of applications, right? Hmm. And um, and that they could also so to, so maybe I'm confusing you more now, but like they could also. <laughs> Interact directly with Celestia. So, so the rabbit hole goes deep. The the answer, oh. unfortunately, always is like it depends, um, <laughs> <laughs> like how how people use the the, the stack, right? Um, I think for a smart contract living on, let's say, Optimism or Arbitrum directly, of course, the DAP developer does not need to interact or care about Celestia. But if you wanna like deploy more of a like layer three on top which like i think all these big um roll-up ecosystems now offer in various ways then you could post your data directly on uh, celestia as well if it's something you as a dapp developer need to care about i doubt it i think you take something off the shelf that um, has like celestia integrated like mm. the solutions team that uh, Yaz mentioned is working on that. And then they um, would write their DAP, launch their rollup in a rollup or like layer three or whatever um, it's called. Then their product, like their app wouldn't need to care about, but they have the, like they would make a choice. Okay, I want to post my data on this data availability layer or that data availability layer, right? Mm. What I want to do is also contextualize where Ismail saying on the it depends part. So that's kind of like the whole thesis around <laughs> Celeste, right? It it's so modular <laughs> that you can like, and then when people ask us, well, what can you do with it? And you're like, you know, build whatever, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> like it becomes, because you have so much option, like it's mm. actually very liberating. You have developer choice first, whether it's, you know, you want to deploy your own rollup for your whatever NFT kind of application, or you want to deploy an NFT application on an existing rollup or any other, you know, kind of structure that you want, you know, that it depends, it depends on what you want mm-hmm. to do, right? And this is why we say build whatever. <laughs> so, so we're basically adding more to the trilemma, right? Like there's more choices you can you can do um, in the sense like how much you care, for instance, about upgradability and sovereignty of your mm. application, right? That I think is something that is like a bit underrated r- right now. Because, like people might not care enough about it right now, but like it is an actual like decision. For instance, if you deploy directly on Ethereum, you adhere 
to the like fork choice rules of Ethereum and like a everything, right? And um, yeah. if you are your completely own Cosmos zone, you're completely sovereign, right? But mm -hmm. then you have like this own consensus and like other trade-offs. Yeah. Like Celestia basically enables you to not have your own consensus, but at the same time, it still enables you to choose between different uh, layers of sovereignty mm. or tapping into existing ecosystems if you, you want can, to. Like, tap into different settlement layers or yeah because mm -hmm. exactly. i i do remember that that like the settlement layer is definitely separated like celestia is not providing that but back then there was conversation about like a potential settlement layer for the sovereign chains is that still on the roadmap is that still something that people want to do i think there's at least two teams or maybe even three teams that I'm aware of that um, want to build a settlement layer on top of Celestia. Okay. So it's not enshrined. So it's like not that we would add um, a general purpose execution environment on Celestia and then people would deploy their smart contracts there directly. But instead, it's like using Celestia for data availability, layer, uh, for data availability but there's a settlement layer on top. Like that settlement layer just uses Celestia. Mm. Or the applications on top of that uh, settlement layer use last year, either directly yeah. or indirectly. <laughs> you have the choice. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm aware of two teams, if not three. I'm not. I'm not sure if the third team decided yet, um, but there are certainly people working on that. This is going to be a here, here's maybe a fair summary. Is like Celestia is a is a useful primitive to like build things on top of and of course that in that might involve like many many things some that we haven't even thought about quite yet yeah. right which allows you to essentially choose somewhere along the spectrum of you could build on ethereum right and that means that you are bound by the laws you know set by god i mean vitalik sorry i mean ethereum um <laughs> as you know the ones you know true that are true there is the other end of a spectrum which like all right just get good and build your own chain Right. And just do all of the like things that you have to do, you know, do all of the chain things, quote unquote. Um, mm -hmm. And now there's kind of an interesting middle, right, which says, OK, great. Like you can have kind of a, a weird mix of the two where you could you have this this like in between state that is kind of given to you by Celeste. It says, great, you can build part of the chain, you know, for example, in this case, like logic rules for state transition so like you know when is a block valid or something like that uh and then we will take care of one of the parts of building a blockchain mm. for you which is data availability like it's like you can think about it as like a weird like okay now like somewhere in the middle of a spectrum and you know a spectrum might have many dimensions like you you now lie here right mm. yeah and that yeah. middle is also a, a spectrum like that's right. In itself as well. Correct. It's and a, a trilemma, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and a trilemma and a six-dimensional, you know, simplex of triangles. Yeah, we should get a graphic designer in on this one, man. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I just wanted to add that while it sounds complicated, it's actually quite simple, right? Like it's not yeah. while you have the choices, it's only you have to make them when you care uh, about them and then you have the freedom to choose but you don't always have to choose right i think it's also part of the devrel's team or solutions engineering team and to do that like um work towards like uh, good dev ux i mean it's not only their responsibility it's also like teams external teams are building like infrastructure such that you don't have to make these choices so there's defaults mm -hmm. and you can like just click like deploy and done 
But if you want to, you can like choose all the layers and use it as if it was like Legos, or you can use something off the shelf and use on, like mm-hmm. only add the tiny bit that you care about. You as a developer, mm-hmm. you as a community, or you as a as a DApp developer, like that that part that you care about, like as much sovereignty, how much sovereignty do I want? Do I care about Ethereum as a settlement layer? Do like all these choices you can only you only have to do them if you want to, right? Like that's the goal is like there's only like very good defaults, very good dev UX, and you can also just deploy whatever you want. Hmm. I just realized like I don't actually understand, I don't think we've talked about what are the fees for using this for Celestia as a DA layer? Like, I'm guessing there is still some fee. And how does that actually get paid? Like, who receives it? If you're not, you know, if you're sending, if you're kind of living partly on Ethereum, but you're using Celestia's DA, how does that payment happen? It depends. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> you're killing me. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but, what a simple... <laughs> yeah, but, like, whoever posts the data on Celestia pays the fee, right? Like, That's And that can be the sequencer. Ah, okay. Could be the user, right? Like, if the user directly um, submits the transaction, which is, like, possible, right? Like, it's a based mm-hmm. roll-ups. In based roll-ups, they... Uh, uh, you always submit like blocks or transactions directly onto the data availability layer. So like it actually like it honestly depends who who that party is. But the party that like posts the data on Celestia pays the fee. Okay. When you sample, when you do the sampling, is there any sort of payment there as well? It's just no. the posting. Yeah, it's just the posting. Okay. So this also has like an interesting set of mechanics uh which is that storage is priced separately from like whatever compute for example Mm. right like the person who's storing has to pay a value to celestia which is totally independent of the value that someone pays for the compute that needs to be done on the data for example so i I don't know i mean this is is kind of interesting it's like also similarly like you know how you've disambiguated resources they've also disambiguated their pricing which uh Mm. leads to kind of interesting yeah. downstream consequences i assume i actually don't know how l2s are going to deal with this for like for the end user I, I don't actually know what this looks like maybe they're just shown some aggregated price or something i think it's just the the, the actual like sequencers that pay the uh, fees currently right like it's, uh, mm-hmm. like their right. users do not interact with the um currently with the data availability layer i don't know if there's like a based rollup deployed currently like maybe Yaz, you know, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> we, me and the DevWells, uh, we hacked on something, but like it's not really, it's just like for fun, like a okay. simple base roll-up in Rust, um, but it's not ready. Um, <laughs> like it's just like a hackathon kind of project. Um, yeah. But like, yeah, base roll-up would be like an example of a, like a roll-up that interacts directly, like from a user point of view with Celestia. Mm. Yeah, so I, what I mean is that the sequencer itself needs to charge the user enough for like mm-hmm. whatever data, they, whatever state they are touching or whatever the data they're touching. But like in some sense for the sequencer, right, the the data cost is disambiguated from the computation cost that has to Absolutely be correct, yeah. put on Ethereum. Yeah, that's correct. And, and, and I think like... Um, how the applications that are currently deployed uh, handle this is most of these protocols either have a token or some business model right. and they don't uh, give the 
like they don't ask the user to pay the fees directly. Instead, they pay right. the fees and they their re- like their protocol revenue is generated in their native token or however, and that's how the paying of the fees is subsidized, so to say, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the sequencer as it earns like money, essentially, like part of that is like set aside to deal with separate fees from Celestian, similarly separate fees from whatever. And let's say it's an L2, so whatever the fees that you need that the L1 would charge for whatever service it's providing. So yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. I mean, it it also like foreshadows all of this crazy stuff that's happening with uh, like EIP four eight four four and all of this like any any number of um, Ethereum initiatives in this vein. So it's mm. it's kind of it's an interesting like set of consequences that are downstream of having two separate services for each of these. I kind of want to expand on like so the modular stack in a way. I think I think you you guys pioneered that idea and that narrative, but are there additional pieces of the process? Like we've already talked about consensus, NDA, and settlement, execution, state rather. So like, are there other things that you think could be pulled apart in the future? Guillermo and I and Mustafa, we actually kind of brainstormed um, a modular P2P network over dinner in London, (laughs) if you remember. That was a really fun conversation, but I thought it was really... (laughs) Because um, peer-to-peer, like, as a network itself, because, like, you know, different nodes peering with different nodes, it's just, like, it's not really structured in a way. It doesn't have to relate to Celestia necessarily, but, like, just in general, how nodes communicate with each other could be really improved and stuff. Um, and Interesting. seeing more modularization or improvements on the peer-to-peer stack would be really cool. Mm. Um, I want to talk about the CIP process. Yeah. Because this is, so you kind of compared it to the EIP process. This is the way that Celestia changes. I guess the reason I wanted to bring it up is it. I think depending on how far along you are with that process, it sort of gives us a sense for how far along you are in kind of like decentralizing the power and giving it to the community to make those decisions. Um, the network launched what is it like Halloween three months ago yeah so it's still pretty fresh <laughs> oh yeah Halloween we didn't yeah. dress up it was very silly but um, yeah. <laughs> we thought about it yeah the um, launch was didn't... not that boring <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh are people already using the CIP process is this something that actually is it CIP process or am I saying process process no, it's Celestia Improvement Proposal. Proposal. Process. process. Okay, fine. Good. <laughs> so you're, yeah, yeah, it's good. It's um, but can one already do that? Or are you sort of just in the process of <laughs> process, process? Are you just in the like in the moment where you're actually building that system? The CIP process as it exists today is actually getting going better than I expected and stuff. I'm actually surprised. In the sense that if the question is about, do we have external core developer teams participating in the process? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So currently there are four working groups, right? Mm-hmm. There's the main one for core and consensus. And that's where, you know, we have the core developer call and people can watch it live on YouTube when we have those meetings. They're very transparent and stuff. Um, and this is where it goes around all the specifications and that goes into Celestia, at least from a consensus point of view, if we want to activate a hard work to activate those features okay. and introducing the concept of rough consensus. Um, 
which exists in, you know, the EIP process. It exists in the PEP process for Python. It existed. It's like a passing of the torch for like these kind of specification working groups, right? Then we have other ones. There's an interface one um, working group, and that one has um, external teams like Astria participating in it. It has um, Iger, which is building a Rust-like client uh, for Celestia's DA network. And then there's the DA working group, which is just um, two different uh, teams. There's the Celestia Labs team uh, with Celestia Load, and there is Iger. And then finally, and that you know, it was announced like a couple of weeks ago. You guys might like it because it's related to the podcast. Um, there, the ZK working group by Zaki and uh, Skip Protocol. Uh, oh, yeah. We know about that. I don't know about this. Yeah, they uh, they announced they wanted to do a working group, I believe, two weeks ago. And they had their first meeting last week. Um, and there was like 60, no, 50 people attended that meeting from all over the ZK yeah. world and the Cosmos world. It was really, really cool to see. Bunch of ZKV people were in there, actually. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. This is our kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, I'm sad I missed this. <laughs> well, it's just the kickoff. I don't think it was like the finale. Like, I think there's a lot of stuff to do. Yeah. It was like the kickoff call. Yeah. Um, but uh, Guillermo, I can add you to that group. <laughs> but um yeah um so now you have a zk working group right and now there's you know four working groups and there even talks about maybe more depending on what roll-ups are looking for and stuff so mm-hmm. we're already seeing a lot of interest a lot of people want to interact with the process because mm-hmm. they find it to be a really good process and it's not like we're reinventing the wheel it takes the best kind of practices from other processes that exist that are what define what we call off-chain governance, which is a superior way of governance around technical specifications, because that's Mm -hmm. where you have all the experts, all the core developers, all the research folks, um, you know, reading those specifications and, you know, going through a rough consensus process to decide what to add to Celestia for activation. In the CIP process, though, is that yeah. only for the outcome of these working groups? So, like, first you do this off-chain and then, like, is it on-chain? I guess this is kind of the question. Like, how on-chain is it? It materializes on-chain eventually. But yeah. um, in the sense that these decisions, if they're made and accepted by the community, they will materialize on-chain, but it's completely off-chain. Like, sorry, yeah, to interrupt. the decision-making. The on-chain part of this decision would be mostly like if the Celestial Lab core developer team releases a new binary mm-hmm. and then, you know, activates a feature in the future, that would like make it on-chain if that's the question. I'm not sure if that's what you're talking no, about. No, no, I mean, on-chain the question, yeah, yeah. The really, the question is, is, is there like, do you plan on having on-chain governance and having, like, the validators voting on some upgrades? Or do you actually picture most of this happening off-chain in working groups? And then it's, like, the core team basically makes the call. I'm very opinionated on it. Um, I don't know if I'll get in trouble for saying it, but I don't really care. I've been, I've been saying it for a long time. Okay. Um, I, I really hate on-chain governance. I ah. Like, me, my personal taste is I, you know, I know that there's more like a Cosmos community kind of thing, but I think like, and Vitalik also talked about it, a bunch of other people, like coin-weighted voting for activation of um, technical features in a blockchain is a flawed mechanism mm. because you're reliant on people voting with their coin who might ha- not have 
the context on these changes compared to core developers who've been studying this, like the network, the code, the specification, the research in and out, and they have a better decision-making process around would this screw the network or not if we activate Mm -hmm. it, right? Yeah, I mean, I've I've definitely heard the the arguments for and against it. I think having, like, existing in the cosmos hub and actually voting on a lot of these things i've gotten to see it firsthand and wanted to add one more thing so yaz dislikes the on-chain governance so much that he did not mention that there is a tiny component there's like a subset (laughs) of parameters that can be voted on chain um so and these parameters are mostly governance related parameters and a few like very few minor parameters of the chain that can that makes like the memo field in a transaction how large should Lock it be size. like what's the yeah. max or mm-hmm. okay. or um mm-hmm. how like what is the min deposit for actually voting on on any of this you can vote on that yeah. <laughs> but like that's that's um that's uh <laughs> what's the word for this it's very like it's very internal it's like yeah, you exactly, can exactly. you can change in the clubhouse you can change the color of the wall of the clubhouse but it's there's one thing was one thing so that we have a we have a hard-coded like in the software currently hard-coded max of like uh, block size uh, or square size, the current block size, you can change it via governance up to, I think, eight megabytes max. And then if, if, if that's reached, you'd like if the community decided we need bigger blocks because there's so much demand for it, then there would be an off-chain process, the CIP process, uh-huh. uh, to to go beyond that, right? Like, if, if, Because we know like the current software can handle easily 8 megabytes. And um, we started with the like most optimal like block size and parameter, but like that's a an, that's an relatively important uh, parameter that can be vo- voted on via on-chain governance, but only up to a certain limit. And these limits are set currently such that like there's a range where it makes sense, right? There isn't, for instance, like in other Cosmos chains, there's like also you can change inflation. There was like this mm-hmm. huge debate yeah. on the Cosmos hub. Like if, if inflation we, should be hard. EKV right? tipped it. It was kind of exciting. <laughs> like, <Ooh>. ZKV <laughs> tipped it. Oh, yeah. nice. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like that. That like things like this. I I think I completely agree with Yaz, right? Like I'm, I'm not advocating for on-chain governance. Like things, important decisions like that should not be voted on via coin-weighted voting, basically. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I wish I hadn't been like, we did that. <laughs> <laughs> like, we can cut yeah, it out of yeah. on-chain governance. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I mean, in, in the Cosmos Hub, there's no other way, right? Like, there yeah. is definitely, definitely the right way to do it. It's, oh, my God. Um, it's not that you have a choice. <laughs> um, I mean, the community has a choice. They could hard fork, right? Like, they could say, like, I don't know. We we disagree with the hubs currently like current inflation, and the community does not come to agreement on chain. So we will hard fork the Cosmos hub. And there were there were I yeah. think even initiated by one of the like founders I think yeah. in Cosmos right. There was a discussion of like Atom two or or I, I, I don't I don't I don't even remember the name, but there was a discussion around forking the Cosmos hub. So there yeah. is a way, mm, but. That's only in case of like an extreme situation, an extreme emergency, so to say. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think 
if this can be avoided and like off-chain governance um, can be used as like much more prefer preferable. And so far, the experience with the CIP process that's like shepherded or like stewarded by by us is like insanely good, right? Like there's a lot yeah. of very constructive debate. Um, people are like community is super eager to participate and and improve, um, like literally improve Celestia, right? So the, it's very nice to see. Cool. I feel like we should chat a little bit about what's coming up, technically, product-wise, and maybe events. What's in the pipeline? Mm -hmm. I mean, on the technical roadmap, what is the biggest thing is like Blobstream deployment, right? Like mm -hmm. Blobstream currently is not deployed, and it ah, okay. um, that's a feature that the community needs to activate. But like that will be the biggest next. In my opinion, the biggest next feature that is going to be live. When roughly is that happening? Very soon. I <laughs> honestly like soon like TMD. Yeah, but like but like not years. It's like okay. rather weeks or something. Oh. I mean, it's up to the community oh. to decide that. But like, I think there's audits happening in the background. I, I don't want to set a date because I can't decide it. But uh, mm -hmm. uh, it's it's literally like probably weeks away. Yeah. Then there's a lot of like there's a lot of optimizations ongoing, like both on the consensus layer, which means like uh, working on comets or tenements uh, P2P system. The mempool is being optimized. There's also CIPs uh, about some of that. Like there's uh, proposals. I think there's already like 15 proposals, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Another big feature that's being shipped is is pruning. As as boring as it might sound, it's like actually very important for node operators. Um, yeah. There's again, there's a CIP for that, and also a lot of optimizations on the DA layer. Mostly, it's mostly mm -hmm. about like performance and stability currently, right? Yeah. And like long term is if there's more and more demand for block space, how do we guarantee that Celestia can still like uh, serve that demand, right? We have this like internal mantra is like one gigabyte blocks. And yeah, it sounds a bit insane, uh, but data availability sampling would make it practical at least if there's like many, many light clients, like billions, not, maybe not billions, but like many, 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 many light clients, right? And mm -hmm. um, so while it's not planned to achieve that this year, it's definitely something we work towards, right? I think that's like from the technical side, optimization, stability, blob stream, pruning, and then long term, make it possible to have one gigabyte blocks. Cool. All right. What about on the products and events? Adoption. Or adoption. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, we can summarize all of that into like an adoption kind of setup. Okay. Um, so... <laughs> Just to carry a little bit more of the technical stuff from the adoption point of view, um, more integrations are coming. Like we're, we're actively working on Polygon uh, CTK integration. And I think, was it this week or last week? I, I don't remember. Um, like Starkware announced like um, integration with Celeste Sorter, active work on that that's being scoped. Um, from the rollup deployment side, I mean, there's like Lyra Finance, there's Manta Pacific already deployed, um, there's um, Upnode, which is like a gaming kind of rollup. And we already can see um, like Manta Pacific, I believe there's a tweet by Manta Pacific about 
like within one month after like migrating to using Celestia for DA, they saved like a million dollars. Um, oh. A lot of people using OP stack uh, deployments roll up as a service providers um, like Conduit and Caldera are seeing a lot of adoption because now with one click deployment using Celestia for DA, you're seeing a lot of interesting people trying to you know migrate. PVN, which stands for Public Goods Network, is actually shutting down. It's like a project within Gitcoin, um, but even though they're planning to shut down within six months or something, um, they migrated to using Celestia just to save money while they In shut the meantime, down. <laughs> you know, so you're already seeing really like wow. really interesting kind of like cool things happening on the adoption side. And Lyra, um, after they went modular, they started generating sequencer profit, right? Um, someone shared about Lyra, like the profit kind of goes down and then they, you know, switch to Celestia for the kind of, climbing up again and stuff. Mm -hmm. So to wrap mm -hmm. it up on the adoption and product side, there's um, a lot of different integration that are being scoped out, a lot cool. of different rollups that are waiting, like, you know, they're going to deploy on Celestia. And there will be more interesting use cases for gaming rollups in the future, because now playing a game is really, really cheap. When you have a gaming rollup that um, uses cheap DA as a resource, mm -hmm. right? Mm. And yeah, I mean, that's um, like what's currently scoped out for the rest of the year from like the product integration and adoption side. Do you have any events planned? You sort of mentioned this hackathon. Is that live? It's not live. Um, so um, we haven't announced a hackathon, but we are coming up with our own concept for a hackathon. So one of the problems that I see with modularity, at least from a community point of view, is, you know, it's like this big infinite canvas mm -hmm. and you would, you know, you want to get started painting. And when we're like, you know, modularism, not maximalism. So it's like, okay, great. You know, like we're modular, you know, we're, we're all about building and stuff, but there's no, a sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. Right. Or like single line to like, there's no one like path that people are supposed to do. Yeah. Exactly. It's like we're that thing that kind of hooks you for a sense of belonging while you're hacking. And when you say build whatever, it's great because it gives you a lot of freedom, but it's kind of like watching Netflix where you have so many options <laughs> and I spend more time deciding what to watch than what I end uh... up watching, you know? Um, so what we want to do with the hackathon is going to be an online hackathon. We're going to announce it hopefully early March um, mm. around that timeline at the first version of that hackathon. But I want to introduce a little healthy tribalism into the hackathon just to make it more competitive between hackers. Ooh. I can't say anymore. It's going to be really fun, really exciting. And and yeah, I mean, like, don't be like a ZK track that, you know, we can collaborate on. Anna. Sounds good. The other things that are happening on the community side, so I'll go like, you know, from the smaller grassroots one to the bigger one. On the grassroots events, we have the modular meetup program. And now that's spreading like wildfire, where um, last year we had about 12 meetups around the world. The past week we had two meetups and we have like four planned only for January and February. Mm -hmm. One was in Nigeria, in Wari, Nigeria. The other one was in Zagreb, Croatia for this year. We have one planned for Buenos Aires, for Barcelona, for Lagos. I think there's one for Istanbul. Like a lot of Ooh. like there's so like the idea behind the modular meetups is my experience with other L1s is when it comes to like community building is a lot of times you'll find like organizers come up to you and they'll be like, well, if you pay me a grant, 
I'll set up a meeting for like a meetup for you mm-hmm. in my random part of town. And, you know, that's fine. But like, what do I, what do you get out of it? It's not really community building, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like pay to play kind of like, you know, community psyops, if you will. And what I was interested <laughs> in is I wanted people who are actually committed to the vision of modularity, people who actually are passionate about being community leaders in their own like local regions and, you know, start building something before I can even consider sponsoring them. Mm. Right. And like the advice I would give them is like, well, you don't have to find a venue that you got to pay for. You don't have to do anything fancy. First, try to see how many people are interested in modularity. See the side of your community. And the easiest way to do that, go meet up at a bar. Mm. And just invite people to, it's not going to cost you anything, right? And that's what happened with the modular meetup in Paris. What the organizer mm. brought people to a bar and they had like a quick presentation on modularity, then they had modular trivia mm. games, right? And the people had fun and stuff. And then you see a lot of people in attendance and the guy is energized to create more, more modular meetups. So we're seeing a lot of interest there and it's, my target for 2024 is 22 modular meetups, so wow. double last year. Um, I think we're going to hit that number. Um, cool. After that, we're doing what we call the modular day series, which is one-day conferences that could happen mm-hmm. at different mm-hmm. conference circuits. Ah. So we had one in Istanbul last year. We're scoping one out, I think, for Denver, and there might be another proposal for somewhere in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so that one can be like a like a one-day kind of conference around modularity and stuff organized by um, community uh, organizers. And finally, Modular Summit 2024. This is what I wanted to know. This is my real question. I'm building it up for Modular (laughs) Summit 2024. I kept being like, when can I interrupt him to say, when Modular Summit? (laughs) I wanted to build it up. I want to build up the excitement. Um, So... The modular summit 2424, like when you when we're talking about the meetups and that modular day series, you can think of the summit as a pilgrimage for everyone around the world to go that one time per year for that flagship event where they can talk about, you know, like all the brightest minds talking about not just modularity from like the infra point of view, but like all the different subcomponents, all the different topics. So last year we had a really successful one, Anna, as you know, you were yeah, curating yeah the uh zk track for it mm-hmm. yeah i mean this year if you're open for it i'd love Definitely. to get you to curate it again um, yeah. and stuff. um we're thinking about a three-day event we know where we're gonna do it but we can't announce it yet until we you know Lock finalize some of the details yeah, but yeah. it's gonna be somewhere in the summer it's gonna be bigger we're gonna go way bigger this year um it's gonna be a lot more fun and we're still gonna go with the same kind of concept around allowing different people with their own sub communities and topics to curate it uh and stuff um for like the main stage and i think that's what made it special last year sure amazing well thank you for that little kind of hint at what is coming yes really appreciate it um I want to say thank you to both of you for coming on the show. Thank you, Ismail, for coming back on the show. Yes, you got to be on the show. I'm so happy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy. That was pretty fun, yeah. Nice. Yeah, likewise. All right. Well, I want to say a big thank you to the podcast team, Henrik, Rachel, and Tanya. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.